everybody, and welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast where some friends from Philadelphia get together to talk about movies uh, and just talk about movie-related or show-related topics. We kind of uh, bounce around with that. But today, uh, we are doing a bonus feature episode, uh, which means, uh, for those of you familiar, we are breaking from format a little bit, and we've all just watched the same film together. Uh, keeping with the month's theme... Uh, of animated films that we keep returning to, I have brought to the table today The Secret of Nim, which we've all just seen. So how's everybody doing, and how's everybody feeling about what we've just seen? Happy and a little confused. It was Feeling so, so normal. Good. I loved it. <laughs> Baseline. I really loved it, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, feeling good. Like, was it... I'd never seen it before. This is my first viewing. I've never seen it either. All of us. It was stunning standalone, but Mm -hmm. also so wonderfully, like, reminded me of other animated movies that I really love. Oh, yeah? Mm Mm-hmm. Anything in particular? (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't know if Christine and I mentioned it. It's not like we said it 20 times (laughs) while watching it. But, uh, Thumbelina... (laughs) <laughs> and also the east uh, the uh, oh god um the uh, butter with that drinking game of Christine mentioning this movie the or uh, Basil Baker Street <laughs> the Great Mouse Detective yes but yes. Thumbelina came to mind mm-hmm. uh because of the animation the the, seemingly, <laughs> the do specifically the do the the like That's watercolor the, yeah the dew drops on each leaf everything looked it was like the animated character the animated mice but then also the almost watercolored backgrounds that mm-hmm. was just so beautiful and glowing and shimmering mm-hmm. and I watched Thumbelina more times than I'd like to admit <laughs> and Same. that's what I remember about that movie yeah. every every background of this movie could be a painting yeah I know it looks so good and also the music was? the music Most is very like in my were... head too yeah. like that swelling you know yeah Ooh, yeah the swelling orchestration it's so good <laughs> Dave, do you want to give a little brief plot outline? For I sure do. So, uh, <laughs> the movie Secret of Nim, for those unfamiliar, uh, it's based on a book called uh, Miss Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. Uh, the film, uh, by contrast, is Miss uh, Mrs. Brisby, which is a little bit different, as uh, we'll get into. Um, but uh, she is a character, a mouse, who lives in a field. Uh, at a time when it's necessary for her to move her home and her family because of the uh, coming. Uh, seasonal plowing uh, of the field and as such uh, she's unable to uh, because her son Timothy or Timmy is sick uh, with pneumonia so she's trying to uh, get that situation under control through the help of uh, some other characters which eventually leads her to the rats of Nim uh, rats that live uh, nearby on the farm property uh, in a rose bush that have created a pretty intricate society for themselves uh, using electricity and technology uh, it's explained that they did this because they were part of uh, an, uh, testing, uh, an animal testing program through the uh, National Institute of Mental Health, or NIM. Um, as such, <laughs> these rats became, mats and, rats and mice became conscious uh, and self-aware uh, and began using and developing technology, stealing it from the humans, but wanting to break free from that uh, and uh, not steal from the human beings anymore now that they have their own sentience and their own mission. Um... Very like Planet of the Apes, we're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And um, then, as, as the film goes on, it becomes urgent that the rats aid moving uh, Mrs. Brisby's home because Jonathan Brisby, her former husband, uh, was instrumental in helping the rats escape from uh, Nim to begin with. Um, 
which ultimately they do through the help of the rats and their intelligence and also through the help of some very handy and uh, unexplained magic. Um, God bless unexplained True. magic. But the journey along the way is a uh, an interesting uh, an interesting approach to making a children's film in, in particular uh, in the sense that it was made by Don Bluth and uh, several Disney animators who defected from Disney, uh, left the company in the late 70s uh, and into the early 80s to work on this film. Oh, I didn't know it was a contentious split it from was. Disney. Interesting. This was like the anti... As they were changing their animation style from... I guess like rotoscoping is that what it'd be called? Into yeah. kind of more like cheaper, like I think 101 Dalmatians was the first Disney movie that used a cheaper style of animation. Like Sleeping Beauty was a flop, and that was like the last like huh. traditional Disney animation with like Snow White and Bambi. And so 101 Dalmatians going forward using a cheaper animation style so they could get bigger returns. And people like Don Bluth and other people who moved on to work with this movie did not like. Um, cutting the costs, you know, the corners. So they wanted to return back to the, f- like... More expensive, yeah. Animation to the potential of, yeah, to the potential of the animation uh, animation genre and its uh, the freedoms that it provides, especially in the sense that they developed a lot of things for this movie in particular that uh, the Disney wasn't willing to spare the expense to use. Because, um, I mean, the textures of each of each scene are like beautiful. You have the like glowing eyes of mm-hmm. Nicodemus and the like yeah. shimmery quality of, mm-hmm. of each of the little realms or universes. Mrs. Brisby goes through. She tries to, f- I mean, I think it's incredible. This whole film takes place on what? Several acres. Yeah. A like farm. a very, like mm-hmm. just one farm. Like I love when movies are a lot, are just like super scaled down, but feel so incredibly rich Spancy. in detail. Yeah. Yeah. Small scale, rich in detail. Even just thinking of that, like, split between, like, 101 Dalmatians that you mentioned and, um, what was it, Sleeping Beauty? Sleeping Beauty. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just, like, weird to, like, think of that, too. So just, like, thinking about, like, kind of the timing of, like, when this split was and how, like, different those types of animation, like, look. It's it's interesting to talk about and think about. And I believe the last film that Don Bluth was working on with Disney was um, the original Rescuers movie for Disney. Yes, oh, I was about to okay. say, this reminds me a lot of Rescuers. <laughs> this does feel Rescuers. There's one scene where, uh, when Mr. Ages is, uh, is bringing Miss Brisby down into, uh, into his laboratory in the beginning of the film, he's shooing away those insects and throwing them around. One of the ones that flies away is Evanrude, the dragonfly from the rescuers. Huh. Interesting. I mean, the whole, like, the uh, Mrs. Brisby riding on the back of the, crow, like, crow, the bird, mm-hmm. very rescuers. The bird that won't, like, shut up, very rescuers. Yeah. It also, like, doing Thumbelina the other week, like, kind of reminded me of the uh, the baddie character Fern also. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. Ferngrilly. Fuck. Yeah. I, I can see that. <laughs> Thumbelina. Oh, damn on the it. Mind, I keep thinking about Thumbelina. <laughs> I was thinking a lot about Fern Gully as we were watching this because I think like one of the conversations we had was yeah. like, how would I make Fern Gully better? Oh, focus it on animals. And then like, hey, here we oh, go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Focused on animals. And I was like, yes, I love yeah, this Yeah, it's still kind of a part of that conversation, but like taking it into another direction. Yeah. And this came yeah. out like 10 years earlier, I think. This was uh, 82. 82. Yeah. So yeah, exactly 10 years earlier. Um, so... Uh, there was a lot of really interesting stuff that was uh, before. I guess before we get into characters and things, the, let's talk. I guess talk a little bit about the uniqueness of the animation, um, in particular of its era. Um, Disney at the time was producing um, 
films that made uh, frequent use of character holds and uh, animation holds and things like that, um, such that they could save on individually animating cells and things like that. Whereas uh, this movie, uh, I'm going to quote some things here from IMDb because they had some pretty good trivia about it. Um, by contrast, yeah, the multiple techniques uh, adapted for the project include a pseudo-hologram and the use of backlit animation, uh, making every dewdrop sparkle or supernatural amulet glow with brilliance mm-hmm. not dewdrops. seen before in animated films since Fantasia. I think in some we ways it, per- it surpasses yeah. that. We mentioned it, yeah. Um, the uh, photographing of three-dimensional model sets and objects to transfer to animation and the Xeroxing of individual cells. Although unlike later Disney films, the cells were linked by uh, hand to eliminate the animator's original sketchy lines. Um, they additionally spent 14 months uh, building and testing cameras for the film. Uh, ultimately, the film ran a budget of just under uh, $7 million which is roughly half of what Disney had been spending at the time on each of their animated features, even with the cost-cutting methods in animation. That's so interesting. Like, Connor, you were saying, oh, the reason Disney departed from that style was to, like, cut the budget, yet this was already half the budget. And and has a shine to it that I think is... Would be rare even among Disney films. Yeah, um, I, I think Sleeping Beauty, in my mind, is the only classic Disney movie that has some, that is artfully beautiful. I mean, Snow White. Other these ones. Fantasia is pretty fantastic, also. <laughs> so Fantasia, Fantasia Sleeping Beauty. I, feel, I mean, with like Maleficent, the dragon, and all the fire. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, and there's mm. um, there's a lot to be said too about the eff- the efficacy of those techniques. Um, in particular, the backlit cell animation, which is why you get the those radiant glowing eyes of some of the characters, like the gray yeah. owl and Nicodemus, or when he's going to write on the um, the parchment in the beginning of the film with his quill, it just got sort of fire just sort of surges through yeah, the paper the and forges the words. Even the title sequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dave, you just described Beautiful. it as like the, the dude writing shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> or as I described it as we were watching it, the dude writing the shit. <laughs> <laughs> this was such a fascinating movie to watch of like a very specific time and place of like Disney transitioning as something different and this very different than a lot of animated movies that come out. There was like blood, violence, like. And that was another big thing that uh, Don Bluth and uh, the Disney defectors, a team of I think like 17 or so or something like that, um, had left because they felt that the Disney's. Not, not only was the animation lacking in terms of the budgets that they had, um, but they also thought that they could write more challenging stories for children that, uh, in a way, kind of mm. bridged Disney's unacknowledged, or at least largely unacknowledged, um, awareness of like childhood, childhood darkness. Uh, just a notion that childhood can yeah. be really mysterious and intense in that way. Um, and and it's a lot of feelings of powerlessness and a lot of things that... Uh, are circumstantially beyond one's control, which is really explored a lot in this film, uh, as well as all, uh, all of Don Bluth's other films. He did um, All Dogs Go to Heaven, um, mm. Rockadoodle, uh, Five Will Goes West, and uh, an American Tale, Thumbelina. Uh, he went on to do a troll yeah. in Central Park, which is terrible. But, uh, <laughs> but a lot of his early films, especially the films of the 80s, confront and tackle um, some really dense and really dark Material as it applies to children's films. Yeah, I feel like we'd been talking a lot of the about this through the whole month about like what responsibility do children like animators and children's movies creators have in uh, in broaching 
like darker subjects. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, do things need to be sort of, uh, I guess, made more palatable for children? Or like, can a child audience really handle intensity also, like, and death and mm -hmm. just as you know, not to get into what we do, but like a lot of like you know things we have been working on are broaching like more difficult conversations with like younger audiences um so it just kind of feels something fairly close to home you yeah. know just just in general but i mean i know people who like one of the people i met when i first moved to chile was someone who was trying to figure out how to make grieving like just more of an easy like conversation with kids they like made like this mm. game about grieving um which i thought was very very interesting um so it's just kind of yeah like i mean the more and more I talk to kids, the more I'm just like, fuck, kids are smartest, smart yeah. shit. Yeah, yeah they're totally. always smarter And they can handle think. so much. But um, but also just, like, people, like, realizing that and, like, trying to figure out ways to, like, have these conversations just feels very, very important. Especially right now when, like, you know, there's a ton of shit in the world going on. It seems silly to not, you know, involve children in those conversations. It's interesting watching this movie. And then we, we just talked about how I saw Wreck-It Ralph 2. Mm -hmm. which is the newest Disney movie that came out and how that kind of has like a shiny gloss over what is a serious topic of, you know, what happens when friends kind of move away from each other, which was kind of the, the heart of that movie when this is like there's blood and sword fighting and oh, yeah. people well, drowning in mud and Well, it's also like stabbings. a mother and a woman trying to yeah. like figure out what's best for herself, for her family, Sweet. like relocating her family. Like I thought Mrs. Brisby was an amazing character. Mm -hmm. It reminded me of my mom so much. She, just like yeah. that independent, like, like I am a single mom who has to take care of these kids and just figure out how to make like whatever work. Like, She's, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. And there's yeah. a very real strength to her in a way that it doesn't feel overwrought. Like she, um, she's presented with a lot of obstacles and problems that she, she's ready to seize because of her concern for her family or for the situation or for a cause. Um, yeah. And, she, but she, and she's not necessarily a reluctant hero either. Like, she'll do these no, things. Yeah. But she's, like, visibly terrified a lot of the time when she's having to, having to do these things and confront the mystery of her journey. And um, I think the duality of that, that, like, the obviousness of her fear... Um, in the face of her willingness to press on, makes her a really, really interesting, sympathetic, and captivating character. Which, like, that acting plus the animation, like, within creating this character, who, yeah, mm -hmm. like, is visibly terrified, but at the same time, never feels like a weak character or whatever. No. Like, she always feels like a very, very strong, like, presence in those scenes, mm -hmm. and that's amazing. And she starts mm -hmm. the whole, the whole film is started with her trying to find a cure for her son. Like, how can she yeah. help? Her mm -hmm. son, that's how the whole film starts. Yeah, and, like, doesn't seem to, like, pause or, like... I mean, like, she questions things and stuff, which I think is also pretty important, but at the same time, it's just, like, there's all this crazy shit going on. There are, like, you know, these, like, you know, sentient fucking crazy rats <laughs> who just, like, have, like, perfect consciousness and shit, but, like, all this is is, like, a mother's journey to, like, make sure her kids are safe, and it's, like, mm -hmm. fuck all the other bullshit that's going on around this. Like, this is really all that matters which is so cool stop the humans make sure her kids are safe <laughs> yeah. and though we though we learn about the rats and though we learn about their plan <clears throat> to uh to journey out of the rose bush uh to thorn valley because again they're tired of um 
I guess, c- compromising their potential in terms of stealing from the humans. They'd rather be independent. Um, the complexity of that story is conveyed, but it still remains centrally the story of moving her house to the Lee of the Stone, mm-hmm. moving it out of the path of the plow uh, so as to to care for her family. So uh, her... Yeah, she is... Though it's a film that has a lot going on and we're introduced to a lot of different uh, elements, it still kind of remains her story. Yeah. That would be a wonderful, like, offshoot of that movie. Like, it's like you get Mrs. Grisby's story and then you get another movie that is solely focused on the rats Mm -hmm. of Nim. Like a sequel? Yes. Which also, Connor, when you were talking about Wreck-It Ralph, like, recently, you were kind of talking about how there seemed to be these, like, two storylines they were trying to pursue, but, like, didn't necessarily follow either of them, like, as, like, the focus. Mm -hmm. Which I think this one definitely did that, where it had this, like, larger storyline kind of going on in the background, but the whole time it seemed like, like, this mother's quest was, like, the main part of this. Like, no matter what other crazy, like, potentially, like, fantastical, like, shit was going on, like, this was the focus of the movie. Um, so, you know, mm-hmm. I think where you said, like, Wreck-It Ralph, like, two failed, it seems like this is, like, an area where it definitely, like, knew what to pursue, which was cool. Yeah, the idea of, like, let's focus on one character and that character's mission. Like, what's her mm-hmm. driving statement to motivate her actions through this movie? Secret and M, I think, 100% delivered on. Yeah. And then we have, uh, of course, our supporting cast of characters. We have, uh, we have Jeremy, the, uh, crow. <laughs> Yes. Who, again, is uh, wonderfully voiced by uh, Don DeLuise, who, uh, of course, it, I, I guess you guys, it sounds like aren't f- that familiar, really, but, like, yeah, he did a lot of work in um, uh, in Mel Brooks films and did a lot of work uh, conti- moving his... forward with uh, Don Bluth. I think he's in almost all of his films. I just um, can't picture his face. Yeah, I want, okay, Don, Don DeLuise. Send mm-hmm. us a picture of his Don face DeLuise. on Instagram. I think his brother was in uh, Wizards of Waverly Place as the father. Oh, Wait, I don't know. that I guy? Because I think they sound similar. No, I don't want Don DeLillo. Don <laughs> Everyone's oh, I know that face. Checking the phones. But yeah. <laughs> okay, here we go. No, no, Hold it's on. fine. Um, it's going to download, but yeah. <laughs> okay. But yeah, he, he plays that character, the comic relief of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also... Um, he also helps out and looks out for uh, Mrs. Brisby a bit. Um, sort of looking after the kids at one point and getting... <laughs> Getting tied up by Auntie Shrew, who is another one of our supporting characters. Uh, Auntie Shrew seemed to be kind of a favorite around the room. Well, that that one line towards the beginning, where, what was it? Hold on, I wrote it down. The Shrew means well. (laughs) (laughs) Which I was like, that's how I feel most of the time. (laughs) That's the the tagline of life. I'm a Shrew, but I mean well. And then there's the uh, the Brisby family. Um, Oh, boy. I'm going to have trouble remembering their names right now. Cynthia. Uh, Timmy. Martin. Cynthia, Timothy, Martin. And I forget the other and girl's name. Teresa? Thumbelina. Yeah, that sounds right. I think that is right. Thumbelina. Thumbelina. Um, that sounds so familiar. All of whom are just sort of like adorable little mice. They remind me of the... Did we were, the, the Aristocats? The little babes? Of the Cinderella mice. Oh, oh little babes. Oh, okay. Oh, it, they I are mean, the bows. too. Yeah. Yes. The Cinderella Meister it wrecked was, her off Yeah, too. it was the Bose. Gus, Gus. Gus, mm-hmm. Gus. Oh, Gus, Gus. And Miko. Miko. 
Um, yeah, the the bows just like as they're helping Cinderella like get her outfit ready for the ball <laughs> yep. or whatever they mm-hmm. do. But Martin was definitely the um, the kitten in the Aristocats that like is always like meow. Like, always, <laughs> oh, yeah. oh yeah, totally. <laughs> I wish you could see Sam's face. <laughs> That's definitely um, it. Speaking of cats, I think we all acknowledged that the depiction of <laughs> cats in this movie is... Mm-hmm. Big old mustache. Yeah. Um, has a big mustache. I'll tell you one thing, uh, Don Bluth does not seem to be able to draw his cats. I, he's he's kind of got a weird record. Even the one, even the one in, um, what is it, uh, Five of Goes West... Yeah. That cat's even pretty strange looking. It's like a big, big blob creature. Yeah, because like his face just kind of like hangs in the middle of like this shape that I guess he yeah. is. It's a fear if you make the cat look too cat-like, aka adorable and amazing. <laughs> uh-huh. It like doesn't. It's not a menace. Create well, you fear said that exactly. About the owl in this too, where it was just like, oh, is this the an owl? The great owl. Okay. The great owl. And the great owl the great actually owl. Um, voiced by John Carradine. Uh, who at the time huh. was uh, quite intoxicated at the time of the uh, voice recording. And, <laughs> oh, no. And, but, like, visibly intoxicated, came in and did all of his lines in one take. God bless. That's amazing. That's Honestly, a godsend for animation. <laughs> Come into my house. You showed up house. and you did it. All that. That was just the one, yeah. And then he limps away. <laughs> the final <laughs> shot. No, after the last off. sentence, you just collapse. Which is, like, probably, it was just, like, what it was like when he was leaving the street. <laughs> I must go and hunt. Did you get that? I I don't think, it's not in the script, but we could use that. Also, talking about characters, Justin. You gotta talk about. First of all, the name Justin was so startling. Justin the Rat. It probably should not have been his name, but also total rap, babe. Oh, Oh, yes. An actual hunk. Yeah. JT. Mm -hmm. Such a hunk. He reminded me of uh, Robin Hood in the Robin Hood animated movie. Well, you know what? There's something to that because the fight between he and Jenner toward the end of the film, Mm -hmm. the sword fight, is modeled after the um, Errol Flynn... 1936 Adventures of Robin Hood. Whoa, interesting. Pretty much picked up shot for shot. That was was a good scene. That's cool. Good sword play. I think that was my favorite scene in the whole movie. Oh, it's great. It's such a brutal sword fight in this kid's movie. With with rats. Yeah. Someone said that mentioned the sword. It looks like Jafar's sword, right? Curvy sword. The the evil rat with a big curvy sword. Jenner. Jenner? Jenner. Jenner. Looks like he it's he, the he's, crazy he is Jafar. I, I he said, is Scar. I wrote down yeah. just like evil person color palette and it's that yeah. like the blues and the reds. Like, he's got and a black and red cape. Mm-hmm. Oh, those yeah. he, he showed up before either of those characters. Yeah. So mm-hmm. but it's Disney, I'm looking at you. <laughs> Dave, well, Dave, so he wanted to keep the rats in the thorn bush, right? He wanted, they wanted to, to keep yeah. stealing. Yeah, he did. Which uh, I guess in the book is different in the sense that he doesn't become um, the villain that he's portrayed as in this. He instead um, takes some rats and they leave the thorn bush and they go to steal from a hardware store to get more electrical supplies, but they're they're killed in the process. Well, see that I feel like would have been really interesting because Connor, you mentioned like Planet of the Apes. The reason that movie, The Rise of Planet of the Apes, is such a compelling story because you have the competing. Visions of Caesar and oh god, I was gonna look him up. Other guy, and they've both escaped being essentially tortured by humans, and are like, "What Mm -hmm. is the appropriate response to try to gain autonomy over our own futures? Is it to make compromises and do whatever Caesar Mm -hmm. does, or is it to fight back? Or in this case, it sounds like from the book, 
they do their own thing and try to like go and continue to use what materials and resources they've already been using to try create their own society. Pretty much. And I like, I just love that tension between, you know, in Planet of the Apes, uh, I wish I could remember his name. He's sort of, he's not so much a villain. He's just another interesting character that ultimately does I think, some bad things, but like, I think it's Rise really, of, really interesting. I think Rise of the Planet of the Apes is one of the most underrated movies of this decade. I would hmm. tiptoe towards that conclusion. <laughs> I'd have to give it some more thought, <laughs> careful, but I really, really now. liked, I really liked that movie. Christine's like, I'm and not committing. I'm not committing, <laughs> but I, I, I... It's not like this is on a record or anything. Um, actually, it, it, another interesting tidbit about Jenner is that um, after seeing the early animation roughs of his character, um, uh, Paul Chenier, um the voice actor for the role, requested to re-record some of his lines so that he could get his, quote, performance just right. Oh, interesting. perfectionist. Yeah. Yes. He, he did definitely have that, like, charismatic, like, villain... Um, I mean, sound. Also, speaking of the color palette, uh, Ursula has a very similar color palette, which I was also thinking about a lot when I was seeing certain scenes of his. Um, But also, um, just kind of talking about, like, the villain aspect of things, just that one fucking quote where he calls her a hysterical woman. (laughs) I just finished my master's on women and mental health, and I'm like, oh, just, like, that term... I can go off for Triggered. so fucking long. Oh my long. god, yeah, like, absolutely. How, like, yeah, like, all of this is just, like, dismissing this woman who's, like, you know, issues and needs and goals and shit. Like, all of that is totally valid, and he's, like, completely dismissing it. And I was like, ah, Lord, yes, yeah. this is why you were the villain of the story. You hysterical woman. Yep. uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, qu- quick side note, we did, I, we talked a little bit about this in Nemo, and... It's interesting you pick up on color palettes that that villains are given, and I think we sort of questioned in a previous episode, like what is sometimes what is this tendency mm-hmm. to depict villains with either darker clothes, darker color? Like, is this something that animation can break out of so that there's not this problematic yeah. pattern of depicting like some villain? I feel like this movie, it's like. There's a whole range of different colors, but just that well, got me thinking about uh, the red sort of some, blues some problematic elements we found in Nemo and can, can yeah. like mm-hmm. connecting it to something we were talking about in this movie. And that is, and one other other detail that I had listed here about the film is that there were more than 600 colors used in the film. <laughs> um, there are 600 colors. One character in particular, it. the chemist mouse, Mr. Ages, had 26 colors. Ooh. Jesus. Hmm. Uh, Koba was the rival ape's name. Mm. Koba. Koba. But it's interesting, like, I, I often think of, like, the color palette. And obviously, like, I think just black and dark in general, like, are the, the villain colors. And, you know. Tends to we, be. Yeah, tends to be. Yeah. And we've talked about that a bit. But, um, 
just also like sometimes the opposites have, have been interesting. Like in Star Wars, it seems to be like the greens and the blues or like the, the good guy kind of colors and red tends to be the bad guy colors. Mm-hmm. But then you have ones like Harry Potter where it's kind of the opposite and it's these like kind of grayish like greens and blues that are kind of like icky, sliming looking or like the bad colors. And then the redder, pinkish mm. ones tend to, tend to be the good colors. Um, so that's something I've like thought about a lot and just how, I don't know, like what, what that difference actually is and like how people like decide what the, the bad colors should be, you know? And that's all over like comic book theory also. Cause yeah, Dr. Doom, Green Goblin, all these like mm. green type of villains. That's hmm. why the Hulk started life as gray. Oh, that's the first right. Issue, yeah. The Hulk was gray. Because they didn't want to make the whole green, because green and purple are, like, villainous colors. Yeah. And then I guess that maybe turned into the Hulk being the sort of, like, anti-hero, but that's a whole other... And he's got... He's he's green with purple pants. Yep. (laughs) So they eventually changed it to make him stand Uh out more, and then also... And it was uh, cheaper to print green than gray. Oh. Hmm. Hmm. Well. (laughs) How many colors did Mr. Ages have? 26. Which is, uh, yeah, pretty intense. And also, yeah, everything about the... Uh, to go back to the animation a little bit, how expressive the characters' faces are, um, how... And how, uh, throughout the movie, the characters seem to move, like, relative to their... Uh, are animated to move relative to, like, their species, almost. Like, the way the mice moved. The thumping of the rabbits. Or, the, yeah, the thumping oh, of the yeah. rabbits, the way that, that certain things cool. ran through the field. The great field. owl. The great owl. Yeah, there's a detail to that that I think isn't really, isn't highlighted so much in a lot of animated films where a lot of characters just sort of move similarly. There's a lot of nuance and a lot of individual dynamic character to each individual animated character in this movie that I think really sticks. And I think it's pretty typical of Don Bluth films as far as his early animation goes. And this was the first of those animated films. Yeah, Yeah, I know nothing about what goes behind, like, animation, Mm -hmm. but... I, something that really struck me in Coco was like the folds of the great grandmother's hands mm-hmm. and her face, and I saw I found so many beautiful like um, layers to to the owl's face to Nicodemus's face it, that creates that same sense of like whoa this character clearly was it it took time to really create this character and really illustrate this character just with all of the like the folds and the the hair, the layers of hair and mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like you do the Samurai Jack route where it's like simple, clean lines for everything or the super detailed route. And just so what is that, sa- What is Samurai Jack? Um, oh, it's a great animated show. It's probably show. the greatest animated TV show of all time. Yeah, uh, it's real good. <laughs> TV some show. Of the best, some of the best animation, yeah. Yeah. As far as show overall, I don't know. Uh, then it, you got The Simpsons in the mix, too. so it's just like everything is very clean simple lines but all conveyed uh, with beautiful storytelling and very little dialogue throughout it Um, so I feel like you can either do like something that's incredibly stripped down or something incredibly detailed and both can be like extremely successful Mm -hmm. I think that's what makes animation so interesting there's also this aspect of that movie which like we've touched upon a little bit but it kind of being set in this like fairly small at least by our standards like area Mm -hmm. Um, and just kind of this aspect of like making 
things that are fairly normal to most of us, like just fantastical, which I really love. Like it is like it's a fairly normal looking house with a family, fairly normal looking like yard and stuff. But the way that it looks when you get close up is so like beautiful and intricate. And it's like just kind of this like larger idea of like maybe appreciating those settings more than you normally would. Um, which I don't know if that's like a major focus, but that's one thing that I think a lot about when I watch some of these movies. Hmm. Yeah. Yes. Christine, did you have any notes that you wanted to bring up really quick? <laughs> My Christine took detailed chicken notes. Chicken scratch? No, I mean, we covered, we covered <laughs> it all. I, I wrote doors on here, which mm. was also a, something I picked up on or just loved that each new realm that Mrs. Brisby walks through has a beautiful door. Whether it's a glass door, a door made of string, or a door made of wood that just creaks open, and I was like, "Oh, her home does have that like very yeah these beautiful portals." So that was the only note that I wrote that. (laughs) Nice, really. I like that. I I, I didn't even notice that until you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the detail is just incredible. Oh, oh, and uh, Auntie Shrew's use of use of flim flam, which I thought was a great, (laughs) great line. Yeah. Well, like, we also, I think, are, yeah, I mean, obviously, are living in a kind of different time of animation, and we're also a little bit older and stuff, so none of the stuff that's being made is really being made for us anymore, but, um, I mean, so much of it is computerized, and I'm still of the curmudgeon sort that's just like, yes, like, this is pure animation, and I'm I real excited it. about it. Yeah. Are any animated movies coming out that are, like, hand Anime, like, it's pretty rare these days, which is yeah. unfortunate, I think. Um, I really miss it. Maybe in the podcast we go into a rant about, I go into a rant about the original Clone Wars Star Wars TV show, which was 2D, done by the same guy who did Samurai Jack, Jendi Tarkovsky, versus hmm. the 3D animated Cartoon Network show. Hmm. 2D animation is a lost art that will hopefully one day return. Yeah, and a really fantastic medium. And that, oh, that being said... Um, I guess as we're kind of winding down the discussion here, uh, it's probably a good time to bring up um, the recent news about uh, the SpongeBob creator. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of us had, like, like Sam and I just Stephen recently talked maybe. about this, where a lot of our humor comes from SpongeBob. Cause Stephen that's Hillenburg. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think about that all the time. Like, we talk about SpongeBob all the time, because that's mm-hmm. one of our favorite shows, but... Just, like, in general, there's so many, like, very small details of, like, I don't know, like, when I'm joking around and stuff where I'm like, ah, yes, this is, like, a huge influence and, like, just who I have grown up to be as a person. Yeah. And clearly a huge influence on a lot of animators working on other shows right now and uh, shows moving forward. So I had such a big realization that Steven Hillenberger worked on um, Rocco's Modern Life. He was the writer and director. Yeah, on Rocco was yeah. so good. So like, and those two shows were like so formative. Rocco when I was like a little kid. Rocco runs pretty deep through the Nickelodeon, uh, Nickelodeon animation canon. Like, there's a lot of people that went on to do other shows that were involved with that show. Mm-hmm. Who uh, else? There was um, there was uh, one of the guys I think who uh, I believe was instrumental in Angry Beavers. Also worked on the show. Um, I know that the that guy makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I know that the guy who uh, created um, Rocco itself was actually played a a small role in Ren and Stimpy in his later seasons. Um, so it all kind of rolls back, I guess. But um, 
but yeah, that's a it's a big loss and um, a great show. So a show that's still running. Oh sure, yeah, and uh, I hope you know continues for for a while. It has not gotten. I, I have not lost interest so far. Just this is a really short thing, but um, just kind of reading some articles like around his death. I was talking about the like legacy of SpongeBob and everything, and they mentioned the eleven minute episodes, and I was like, whoa, yeah. that's right, like. Amazing stories can be told in 11 minutes mm -hmm. when you'd watch a 30-minute wow. episode that had two segments in it. I was like, dang, that is amazingly... I keep forgetting that that's not that. a thing anymore, you know? Because so many of the, the cartoon shows I love are like... Rick and Morty. long. Yeah. Um, Over the Garden Wall. Yeah. Uh, Steven Universe, like... Yeah. A lot of those shows, I just watched Frisky Dingo season one for the first time. Like, those are all, like, 11 minutes long, too. Um, we can't go back to Arizona. Oh, yeah, Cirque Morty's 30 minutes. I misspoke, sorry. Oh, true. But, like, um, yeah, the 11 to 15-minute episodes. Yeah, there's there's a lot you can do in a short amount of time. Sure. I mean, so much of SpongeBob has stuck with me, like, almost every... I mean, it was... Kind of, I was getting a little teary reading people's like favorite memories of SpongeBob. Yeah. Favorite. I was episodes. gonna, I was gonna ask if anyone wanted to share like a favorite scene because I think one that doesn't come up a lot in like the, I mean there are so many amazing SpongeBob episodes, but one of them for me is the health inspector one <laughs> when they find the like really really disgusting patty that they make to like serve to this guy, and that image of what the patty looks like is always in my head, but it's like not one that I see that often and like you know. People talking about SpongeBob. Not an animated food you'd want to eat. We <laughs> no. talked a no. lot about biscuits and delicious looking. <laughs> well, Krabby Patties no, came it, up, and you not that one. In general, Krabby Patties sound like amazing. I want to eat all of them, but the health inspector Krabby Patty is like the most disgusting thing I have ever seen. It's pretty intense. <laughs> so, um, well, I guess was there anything else anybody wanted to say about either Spongebob or The Secret of Them before we head off? I'm really happy we watched this because this yeah. was not something I watched when I was a kid and I'm kind of mad my parents like were not like, you should watch this movie. Yeah, so go see Secrets of Nim. This was so good. I'm sure you can find it online. And by go see, I, I don't know what I mean. Is it online? <laughs> find you it probably on probably find thing. it someplace, yeah. Everything's like available somewhere. Websites. 1982 was a long time ago. I'm sure it's online. And it's definitely the one that I keep returning to, uh, because even though this is the first time I've seen it in a long time, um, I watched this tape. It was on beta in our oh, house. God. And I, I probably watched it to the point that it, it nearly broke the beta machine. It was kind of like one of those movies that any time I was homesick or just bored, uh, this movie was on in my house. And, uh, yeah, it's a pretty intense children's movie, but uh, that's kind of what drew me to it as a kid. I sort of wanted uh, this sort of idealized promise of, of Don Bluth's intention. Uh, something that's a little more challenging, something that's a little more abrasive, but something that brings a lot of heart to the table and some very memorable characters and some incredible animation. So that's uh, that's the secret of Nim. Uh, yeah, so good. Right on. So I suppose you folks will be uh, able to uh, keep an eye on us via social media. We are on uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, Tori uh, also does a thing. I, I do I do a thing. Uh, Every episode, they look at you. I know, and I always feel awkward about it. I'm always like, mm. um, chill and kill horror. I don't know. If you need more information, message us on a thing and I'll send it. I have a Facebook, but that's about it. It's very informal. It's in Philly. So. It's a real cool event. It's, it is. It's fun. I'm going to have sugar cookies in a couple days. <sighs> I mean. Two days. 
Yeah, so this will be like two weeks after that, but um, whatever. Sugar cookies, sometimes they might be there, so show up at a thing, you know. Nice. And of course, as always, thanks for listening this next uh, coming month. We uh, have a new theme, so be sure to tune in and uh, we'll be getting into that for uh, the month of December uh, and closing <laughs> out the year. Our first, uh, it is an intricate theme that you guys will never guess. <laughs> it's chilling. Um, God. Chill. Uh, but again, and as always, uh, thanks for tuning in to Butter With That and we will see you folks around. Bye.